iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? The great thing about the internet was there would be no gatekeepers. It was a democratizing technology and all users were equal. Now, I can actually give you a full critique on all three of those. But at the time, what struck me was... I've worked out what the problem is. It's if you treat all users equally, it means you treat a kid as if they're an adult. Right. And once I had that thought, I kind of, it was like, it was like the Matrix or something. It yeah. went all the way backwards. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. I'm your host, Danny Fortson, the West Coast correspondent for the Sunday Times, and I am feeling good, excited actually. Next week, I'm heading back to London for the first time in like three years since before that COVID thing was a thing. So I'm very excited to head back to HQ, check in with everybody, uh, catch up with old friends, have a proper pint can't wait it's gonna be great and kind of in preparation for my trip back across the pond this week we have a guest from the esteemed house of lords baroness Beben kidron is on the show and if you don't know baroness kidron or what she's been up to you are in for a treat so longtime listeners may recall that way back in the early days of this pod Back when our logo was still a rainbow unicorn, which I have to say, I still miss. Um, back in 2017, Baroness Kidron came on to talk about regulation of big tech, specifically about creating new rules around how children are treated online. Now, back then, she was kind of a voice in the wilderness. Uh, amid the many things wrong with the internet, people were, frankly, not very focused on kids. Um, fast forward to today, and well, obviously, things look very different. And that is in large part, very large part, due to Baroness Kidron, because she has been the driving force behind the age-appropriate design code, a law that just came, came into force in Britain back in September of last year. And you may not have heard of that, but you may have noticed some of its changes. So there's been a lot of subtle changes that have been happening on social media. YouTube stopped autoplay for certain accounts. TikTok limited the times of day when teenagers can receive messages, things like this. All of these things, though the companies wouldn't come out and say it, were in reaction to or in anticipation of the design code. So individually, those things may feel small. But taken together, what the code has done is to begin to change the online experience for kids, which I think we can all agree does need to change. And that idea is really gaining steam. So in California last month, Congresswoman Buffy Wicks, great name, basically cut and pasted the UK design code and proposed it for California children. And this is, of course, where... Uh, the HQs of the big social media companies are. Uh, Congress proposed the Kids Act, and crucially, it is a bipartisan bill. And this, of course, is all happening in the shadow of revelations from Francis Haugen, the Facebook whistleblower who unearthed these internal documents that showed that Instagram knew its product was really bad for some kids. Didn't change it. 
Um, the point is, it feels to me that we're at this interesting point, quarter century into the internet, that was this, as this kind of free-for-all, and we're really starting to understand the problems that that brings and starting to see the regulations come in to put some guardrails around it in the first area. The place where everybody agrees needs to be improved is what the web is for kids, children, young people, teenagers. So it is in that context that we have Baroness Kidronan, who we can say without exaggeration is one of the kind of leading forces in the world pushing this agenda forward and actually getting laws passed. So she is with us today to talk about how we got here, where we go next, and what it all means for kids and the internet generally. So you're really going to enjoy this one. So without further ado, here is Baroness Kidron. Enjoy. So I wanted to have you on because I'm out here in sunny California, as you know. And a couple of weeks ago, there was a proposal introduced that basically was a carbon copy or close to of the age-appropriate design code in the UK. And then that same week, there was the Kids Act introduced in Congress. And it does feel like there's this, after years and years and years and years of people being like, yeah, yeah, we're going to crack down on tech. We're going to crack down on tech. People are coalescing around this idea of like, let's at least protect kids online. And I wanted to talk to you because you've been on this coalface longer than most, if not all. And you were first on this podcast in 2017. Can you believe that? <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> it was like my first dozen episodes or so. And when I last interviewed you, we, I think it was in uh, at Parliament in your offices there. But so can you just talk about kind of what is happening right now? And um, then we can go back to kind of how you got started in all of this, because I think that whole trajectory is kind of quite informative of where we've got to now. Okay, so I, I think, um, first of all, thank you for having me. And it's it's a great pleasure to be in the valley with them. Um, <laughs> so um, I, I think that this point about what is happening now is something that here, from a European perspective, we don't quite recognize because mm. something's been happening for a couple of years here that we're now seeing uh, sort of bubble up in America. And mm. I think it makes us very excited. So first of all, I want to recognize that there are some people in the US who have also, like me, been banging on yeah. about get it right for the kids you get it right for everybody, hmm. you know. And so you have seen for years Senator Markey sort of reaching across the aisle trying to get something over the line. You know, you've seen all sorts of NGOs saying, hang on a minute, we think this is not an equitable situation. There's an asymmetry of power between tech and uh, children. And you've even seen, you know, the introduction of privacy laws into California specifically. And although they didn't mention children in this detail that, that Buffy Wicks bill does, yeah. it it actually laid the path. And if you look at the questions on, on the ballot and on the mandate that uh, Alistair McTaggart got, so many people who voted for this voted because they wanted to protect the privacy of their children. So I think on the one hand, what feels like one week in the media ends up actually having been a couple of years, if not more, of a decade in the making. I think what is interesting and what is very particular about now is that there is a much 
clearer understanding that privacy equals safety mm. for kids. And, and specifically, we all have begun to understand or there is a general kind of bubbling up of understanding that actually if you are a data-hungry company that wants to keep people on as long as possible, introduce them to as many people as possible and engage with them as much as possible, then actually if you say, oh, not doing those things actually makes people safer. Yeah. yeah. And and we've seen this from a number of different ways, you know, whether it is sort of Francis Haugen and, and pointing out the problems there, whether it's uh, Shoshana Zuboff and explaining, you know, how data drives the features. Yeah. yeah. Uh, or, or whether it is indeed some of the changes we saw last summer for the, uh, after we introduced in the UK the age-appropriate design code that go, hang on a minute, think about the kids first, take those features out, oh, whoops, they'll be safer. Yeah. yeah, and that understanding, I think, is something that is landing now, and it's really exciting. So for people who don't know, because I think a lot of people don't know what the age-appropriate design code is, it actually became law, what, in September? Is that right? Yeah, 2nd second, second September. Yeah, and it's a whole kind of s series of kind of bars that tech companies have to reach in terms of what they do and do not do with kids who are, you know, kids. If you could just give a sense, because I think people don't realize that there's been a lot of like changes, subtle and otherwise, um, that have happened, TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, etc. But they all seem to have been in response or in anticipation of this design code. So if you could just talk about what the design code is, and some of those, what some of the reaction of the industry has been to kind of, you know, respond to it. Sure, sure. So I think uh, the first thing to say is, the design code really is just a method by which it is mandated for a tech company that engages with a child to think of the child before they engage, mm. right? So it says, first of all, a child is anyone under the age of 18. And I think most parents and most human beings know that a 13-year-old is not an adult. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and so we leverage the, the convention on the rights of the child. It says a person under 18 is a, kid. Is a child yeah. and that's it. So that's the first thing. The other thing is, you know, it's it's predicated on taking the protections with the child rather than where you would like the child to be. So it has this concept of likely to be accessed. Mm. So previously, people have always thought about let's make sites for children safer. Yeah. And the code goes, no, that's not good because actually, you know, children are not where governments want them to be they're not even where tech wants them to be and they're definitely not where parents want to be they are where they are and you've got to actually if you as a business engage and then and then finally i think it's important to say that it really takes a by design and default approach it says actually the first responsibility is to have a product that is safe and fair rather than you've got to have a kid who's behaving well. So those are the three things that sort of make a, a kind of conceptual difference. And then there's, uh, you know, 15 markers, if you like, and it's, you know, turn GPS off, don't share their data if it's uh, not in their best interest, don't profile them to offer them detrimental material, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. So, so there comes the code. And the companies, obviously, having resisted it for the longest time, then have to meet the code. And they do really creative and interesting things. And I have to say, 
that the general public and even to an extent the media didn't understand the huge power of data protection until they started complying. So YouTube turned off autoplay autoplay for under 18s i've been trying to get them to do that for years Um, but but they did it because there's stuff around extending use and dark patterns and so on so and they went do you know what that's a no-brainer at google when okay if you're under 18 we're going to give you safe search tiktok instagram said we're not going to recommend as friends strange adults who you don't follow if you're a kid i mean as I start saying this, normally some parent <laughs> or some adult goes, but why are they doing that in the first place? And I think that that's the really totally. big thing about the code is it's actually regulation as common sense, common consensus, children's rights, what you think is obvious. Yeah. And that's why people like it. People like it because it's doing the right thing for kids. And it's it's not really geared to saying any particular kind of technology should be used for any particular thing. It's saying, if you want to play with kids, play fair, play safe. Yeah. Well, that's what's interesting about the code is that it's not draconian at all. As you say, when you list, it, you list those things off, you're like, yeah, maybe a 12-year-old should just not automatically receive messages after nine o'clock, for example. Yeah. Crazy idea. Um, you know, it's just like, <laughs> which is what TikTok has done, I know, by the way, I know it's, it's magic, isn't it? <laughs> but I think that gets to the point. And I think maybe if you could just talk about your foundation, five rights, you did this avatar work, which I thought was really terrible. And especially, <laughs> I mean, good and terrible in what it revealed. Um, and I'm thinking, you know, I have a five-year-old and a three-year-old and, you know, my brother has teenage girls and like, you know. I think it was just a window into what their world is potentially. So if you could just talk about that avatar work, that report that was produced and some of the things that you guys found. Yeah, absolutely. So so first of all, uh, I'm glad you think the result was terrible and not our work. That's yeah. good news. Um, <laughs> so, so just to uh, answer your first bit first, I mean, Five Rights is a charity here in the UK. We're headquartered in the UK, but we do actually work across the globe. And we have really three things on our mind. One is this data privacy for kids. Mm. Uh, the other is child-centered design, which is really basic. You just imagine that the child may be using your service and you act accordingly. And we publish things like a technical standard with the IEEE, and we have all sorts of toolkits to help designers work out what they should be thinking about. And then the third one is children's rights. And we're really proud about that because we, we were asked by the Committee on the Rights of the Child to write an addendum, if you like, saying how children's rights you know, which 196 countries have signed up to, should be considered in the digital world. So those are the kinds of things we do. But along the way, you know, we have to somehow engage people either in the ludicrousness of everything Mm. or in the horror of everything. And so last year we did two campaigns. One was Twisted Toys, where we built, we literally built and made adverts for toys that embodied the characteristics of the digital world. So you've got Share Bear, who is the bear who shares all your information. Yeah. Uh, you have um, terms and conditions which are this big, 
yeah, yeah. for three plus old, and you yeah. have a the stalky talky, which I is indeed it. you know a walkie talkie. So those are actually available on a separate website. It's twisted toys dot com, and they are hilarious. And they are really evocative, and I think they help people understand some of the power. And 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 of- on that twist, sorry, just on the twisted toys thing. So is it kind of like you too can own a stocky talkie, something that follows you around the planet and kind of you know? Oh, you've got it! Oh, amazing! Yeah. Here's, uh, I'm not sure whether I've got the actual, um, whether it's uh, got any battery here, but um, yeah, you can see them online, but they exactly what they do. Yeah. And there are adverts and there's a fabulous catalog. And here you have, oh, the, you the, know, the terms and conditions, which is exactly the same amount of. For those who can, this isn't obviously a podcast, but the terms and conditions book is about the size of two phone books. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it says blah, blah, blah. But actually, if you read inside, there are every now and again, there are some very egregious terms and conditions. Right. Like, I can buy and sell your menstrual cycle, for example. Which, you know? which, is, actually, um, which is effectively, that's real. That's real. Everything in the book is real. Anyway, that's very funny commercial. So that was one thing we did. And we yeah. wanted to do it in a joyous way and in a way that wasn't threatening to people and parents and for them to understand, you know, that there is a better world than this. We've just got to insist on it. The other piece of work was Pathways, which, as you say, was... This was the scare the shit out of you route. (laughs) This was the scare the shit. And in fact, basically what we did was we interviewed a whole bunch of uh, designers and we said, what do you design for? And they say, we design to edit, we design to extend, we design to network. Then we interviewed a whole bunch of kids and we said, how do you feel? And they go, we feel too exposed. We feel we spend too long, you know, yeah, yeah. And, and, and the children's feelings yeah. and what the designers were designing for matched up. Yeah. And then the third part was we built these avatars and we put the coordinates and interests of the real kids into the avatars because for ethical reasons, we didn't want to use real kids. Yep. And we showed how by behaving the way the kids were telling us they were behaving, what was happening to the avatar, and we could film it. And I think that anybody who looks at the Pathways material on our website will be horrified. And I give you a warning right now that kids, you know, we didn't do it under 13 for all sorts of reasons, but we did it 13 plus and self-harm, horrible extreme diets, terrible body image stuff and the most chilling and i think this is all anybody really needs to understand is that on we could see on some of the accounts that they were being targeted as children for advertising purposes Mm. so you have roblox so you have a sweet shop so you have government education offers but on those same accounts there were messages, there were self-harm, gashes, blood, mm. but there were also messages that said, you know, you may as well end it all. Pro-suicide material on accounts that they had identified as children belonged to children. And this is my point here, is for commercial reasons, they know it's a kid. For everything else, they don't want to know it's a kid yep. because then they have to stop this shit. Hmm. I'm on a podcast. I can say that. They have to stop it. Yes. 
right? So I think that that's what parents don't realize. They think everything is what the kid is doing. Everything is between user and user. They think there's bad actors. But actually, the biggest bad actor are the tech companies themselves who are algorithmically going, oh, 13-year-olds are interested in self-harm. You're a 13-year-old girl who seems to be networked with some other 13-year-old girls. We'll send you whatever they're looking at. Oh, whoops, it happens to be this. And they take no responsibility for that. They only take responsibility for commercial stuff. That's not on. Yeah, no. And there was other things in there about kind of, again, kids, 13, 14, 15 years old, whatever, you know, they set up an account and almost instantaneously are getting friended by random strangers. Absolutely. And then there, then, then there's the kind of body image slash pornography chat groups and stuff that they're, again, that they're just added to. Yeah. I, I think, I think that, that it's a really important point to say that every single avatar that identified as a boy mm. within 24 hours was offered adult sexual chat, whether it was a bot or whether it was a real person. Within 24 hours. Within 24 hours. Every single one and most of the girls. And, you know, there is a gender piece to this as well, which is that the sort of demands for self-generated material from young women, young girls, doesn't exclusively, but largely falls on girls. And a lot of the depression, self-harm and body image stuff largely falls on girls. Mm. And so you have this you have this other piece, which is not often talked about, but I would like to say it here, is it is really regressive for young women. Mm. I am a particular age. Yeah, when I was a movie director, I was one of three movie directors who was female in the country. And when I came to Hollywood, I was one of a handful of female. You know, we have fought to break down barriers that are being reinstated by the horrible hate undermining of girls and this sort of pressure suddenly, you know, on how they look and behave online. And we are watching them, you know, lose all the confidence that my generation fought so hard to give other young women behind us. And and I really feel passionately that that's one of the unspoken ills of the digital world. And one of my own personal motivations is that actually if you do not recognize that children are children online, you deny them a childhood altogether because you can't suddenly go offline and be unseeing and unseen and unexperienced about all the things that you've just been through. So it's this thing, this technology that holds so much promise has become very regressive in a couple of very fundamental ways. And and that's something I think people don't quite understand. In the beginning of the argument of the critique of tech, people thought it was sort of old people who didn't like new things. But actually... It's like, I love tech. I was an early adopter. I've got a six-letter email address. I've got the webcam in my, the first ever webcam in my cupboard. You know, I love tech. It just shouldn't be like this. It shouldn't be exploitative. It shouldn't be undermining. It shouldn't be gendered. It shouldn't be racist. It shouldn't be discriminatory. And it really should not demand children give up their childhood. Well, that's exactly like, and I think we just, we discussed this before, you know, the Francis Haugen whistleblower documents, thousands of documents, all these 
She was on 60 Minutes, all these stories from Wall Street Journal and all the other media organizations. And the thing that to me seemed pretty clear was going to stick of all of that. And there's a lot of lurid stuff that was revealed was the stuff around Instagram and how it makes young people feel, how it makes young women feel. I think it's one of these few things, especially these days, where everybody can kind of agree this is not okay. It's not okay. And I, and I want to do a shout out to Frances and say she is a queen. You know, <laughs> it's not just that she walked out with all that material, which is a very brave and difficult thing to do, but she has actually made it her business to ensure that we all pay attention mm. to that fact. And, and she's done that really, you know, superbly well and with a great deal of focus. And I think that, you know, I'm never going to speak on her behalf, but I think that she would also make the point here that a lot of the other things that she's talking about, about, you know, ethnic violence in certain parts of the world created by the, by the system and so on, also affects children, yeah, yeah. you know, and I, and I think that's the other thing is, can we stop thinking children are only victim of pornography and grooming? Actually, children really, really suffer from a lot of the other sorts of egregious acts. And I think for me, I, I agree with you completely that the Instagram stuff was very eye-catching, partly because they know it and they tried it and then they thought, oh, no, the, the engagement goes down, so, you know, we'll go back to the old system. Yeah. And I think what it just shows is when we call them out and we say, you know, you're putting profit in front of kids' safety or should we put it the other, you're putting profit ahead of product safety, mm -hmm. yeah? You know, they cannot deny it because we, you know, we've seen it now. But I think the other big kind of takeaway for me from all that work was there were loads of people within Facebook, as it was then, who were saying, we have solutions. Mm. We have solutions. Just stop, um, you know, adding 30,000 strangers. Stop offering far right to people who've never thought yeah. to, to, to click on anything far right, you know, for themselves. You know, they had solutions that were denied by the leadership. Mm. And I think that's the important takeaway from Francis' work is, you know, I've spent a decade telling people there are solutions. A lot of it is just switching off some really bad rubbish. And here they are proving that they're not taking the available solutions. Nobody is saying that digital world will ever be 100% safe for kids. No environment is 100% safe. But it is basic product safety. It's like a car on top of a hill with no rear view mirror, no brake, no wing mirrors, and a kid at the wheel. What could possibly go wrong? Indeed. The train is now approaching. Junction at platform. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
So I want to talk about, so you, you mentioned you've been doing this for a decade. So can you just give us a brief potted history of B-Ban? Because he, you had this whole other career. You've stopped doing that and have thrown yourself fully into this and have been doing it for years. And I know from our previous conversations for years, it was kind of like you weren't getting very far. So could you just talk about that? Like, what were you doing before? And what what was the kind of the moment that made you be like, you know what, I, I, I've got to change what I'm doing with my life? So I was a, a film director. I was, And I made uh, a lot of movies, both here in the UK and in Hollywood and in New York and so on. And I had that life. But in between making sort of movies for the cinema. Including, was it Brid Bridget Jones' Diary 2? Right. Yeah, I did Bridget Jones' Edge of Reason. I did Tu Wong Fu. I did. Uh, I used people with uh, Shirley MacLaine, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Lots yeah. of things. But in between, I used to make these documentaries, and and they were really sort of centered around two things. One was sort of other artists' work because I was always interested in in that, and social issues that seemed to me very important. Anyway. I make a documentary in 2012 when the smartphone became a price point that an adult would give it to a kid. Mm. And I just saw all the kids changing. I thought, ooh, interesting. I go off and make this film. And it actually, I spent hundreds and hundreds of hours in the bedrooms of children. And if they were watching porn, I was watching porn. If they were gaming, I was gaming. If they were, you know, going yeah. to meetups, I was going to meetups. Do you have kids yourself or was you, were you doing this all through the films? I was doing this. I do have kids myself, but they're a little older. Uh, and so I was not someone motivated by an experience of my own child. Yeah. It was that I have always done a lot of work with kids. For the 15 years before that, I had set up something called Film Club, and so I saw a lot of kids in a lot of different circumstances and I just saw them change. And in the beginning, I didn't have a criticism of it. I would just had an interest. What was the change that you saw? They were looking at the screen instead of each other. Mm. And they were quiet instead of noisy. They were quiet instead of chatty. It's really funny because I was just hearing you say that because I just dropped my boys off at their preschool today. And it's just like chaos. As soon as you walk into the room, it's just like noise and running around and energy. So I imagine if you go into a room with, I don't know how old the kids you were looking at, you were, you know, filming or whatever, but, and it's quiet like that, that's very stark. It was. And I thought, this was literally what I thought. I thought, oh, I wonder what it's like mm. being here and there. I wonder what that's like. That was my first thought, right? So it wasn't... It wasn't something terrible, you know. It was like, oh, that's interesting. They're here and they're there. What does that mean, right? Right. Anyway, somewhere in the middle of making that film, I was in Which New York. Which was called? It's called In Real Life. And in the middle of making it, and there were some very sad stories in that film, and there was some, uh, there were less happy stories, but but it was it was a very early look at this issue, and. I kept on being told by the people who sort of invented the internet, who were the sort of the tech bros, if you like. <laughs> um, I kept on being told, you know, the great thing about the internet was there would be no gatekeepers. It was a democratizing technology and all users were equal. Now, I can actually give you a full critique on all three of those. But at the time, what struck me 
was I've worked out what the problem is, mm. right? It's if you treat all users equally, it means you treat a kid as if they're an adult. Right. And once I had that thought, I kind of, it was like, it was like the matrix or something. It went all the way backwards. (laughs) And I went, oh my God, I now understand everything that's happening to the kids. I've just spent hundreds of hours in their bedroom. Mm. They're all being treated as adult, but they don't have the emotional capacity or developmental understanding or the, you know, or the experience to make the nuanced and adult decisions that's being demanded of them. And that is really screwing them up. Mm. And once I'd had that thought, I was done. I didn't know what to do. I tried to speak to people at the companies. I tried to speak to colleagues in the House of Lords. I tried to speak, you know, to to child rights activists. So were you already a uh, baroness by then? I was made a baroness somewhere in this period, just before I finished the film. Right. Which is, I mean, presumably that was, that's, and if you could just briefly explain to our overseas listeners what it means to be a baroness, because I think it's important because it's obviously been the key to what you've been doing, you know, the design code and how it, how it got passed. Exactly. So we have two chambers here. One is an elected chamber where members of parliament go. And the other is what they call a revising chamber, where we amend and look at legislation. And it is made up of several groups of people, representatives from the political parties, representatives from the church, and a group called the crossbenchers and within the crossbenchers and traditionally the kinds of people who come in as crossbenchers maybe religious reader leaders maybe from the army maybe from civil service etc cetera, etc cetera. but there's a small group within that and they are appointed by a commission and they are called the people's peers mm. and I was asked to be a people's peer mm-hmm. and I was asked to do it because of services to education and to the arts because I had set up this huge educational charity that used film in schools, which is still going on. Right. So that's how I came into the Lords. It was quite a surprise for me, for anybody who's interested. I'm a 15-year-old school leaver. And I had, you know, I had suddenly in this sort of highest echelon of 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 very celebrated academics and lawyers and and politicians and so on. And it was quite a challenge. Hold on, hold on. You left school at 15? I left school at 15. Why? Um, I think uh, uh, I wasn't quite sure what school was for. I think school (laughs) wasn't quite sure what I was for. Um, I did in adulthood actually find out I was dyslexic. Mm. I didn't know until I was in my early 40s. Oh, wow. But, um, and that was when I filled in a form for one of my own children. They said, no, your kid's fine. What about the person who filled in the oh, form? Oh, wow. Was how I found out. But I think, I think more importantly, I, from a very young age, because of a, a medical thing, I was given a camera mm. from the age of 10 I have always taken photographs and somehow being on the outside always got in the way of being on the inside. Gotcha. Um, so I, I, I couldn't get school. Yeah. And I think that that's why I, f- I set up Film Club because I understood that a lot of people at school don't understand uh, information and stories the way that they're taught. And 
you know, even now, as I make legislation, as I make policy, as I give big lectures, as I'm actually a visiting professor at a number of universities, and all the things that finally happen to me, yeah. um, I still very, very often put information in boxes and flow diagrams. Yeah. So I'm, I'm more an engineer than I am a, yeah, yeah, a narrative yeah. writer. Right, 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 right. <laughs> anyway. Anyway. <laughs> I'm not sure how interesting all that that's is. That's <laughs> super. I think it's fascinating because I think it also informs why this is a big deal for you personally. So I think, I mean, really in answer to your question, the data bill came to the House of Lords and I saw an opportunity to put a wrong right. So sorry. So you have that moment in 2013. And you, it's like something that you can't unsee. But you're still a filmmaker at that point. Still a filmmaker. And just in the Lords, still a filmmaker. And nobody's listening. So I go, okay, what does good look like? Mm. And I start Five Rights, which was in the first instance, just an idea. It wasn't even an organization. And the idea of Five Rights was to say, hang on a minute, children have rights and they have rights that go with them everywhere. They do not have rights in a high rise and not in a low rise, in a farm but not at a lake. They have rights that go with them. Exactly. And that's why I always think about the internet, again, because what you're talking about, the things like that you got passed, the design code, they're all very common sense. It's not crazy. But if you look out in the world, it's like, I always use the playground example. Like I have two kids. My older son goes to the bigger playground. My younger son goes to the smaller playground because there's a recognition that they're able to do different things. And that's there's that across the whole society. And then you get onto your smartphone and it's like, nah, no, nah, this is different. Yeah. Nah. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. And I'm going to actually go back to your your analogy. So you go... You know, your son goes to the big playground, the other one goes to the little playground, but in neither playground is an adult standing there throwing glass in their face. Mm. <laughs> right? It's not, you know, I mean, I think the thing is we don't, and that's why I really do encourage your listeners to go and look at Twisted Toys. It's like, yeah. it's so preposterous when you start to put the norms of the digital world. I have literally in the five minutes in the five minutes before we got online, a colleague sent me something and it says, hey, I just want to share this group description. It's a subgroup for gore and much more. Yeah, it contains graphic content, rape, torture, suicide, murder, etc. Some viewers may find this disturbing. Viewer discretion is advised. He said he got on with no age check, not even a tick box. Or a warning. Right. So that's if you're searching. Yeah. But what we were talking about before, which is what's so important about the Pathways product, a project, is that actually, even if you're not searching. The algorithm finds you. Yeah. The algorithm finds you. Yeah. Because you're like someone else or because you hovered for a moment to kind of yeah. go, uh, is that gore? Yeah. And then it's, it's absorbed it. You know. Because someone else was using your phone. Whatever it is, yeah, yeah. it comes, finds you. And I, that's the problem. And so you you founded this organization and then presumably you start trying to talk to the tech companies or other lawmakers, et cetera. I mean, what is the reception that you're getting? I think there's been, you know, th three groups. 
One is some really wonderful, brilliant early adopters who kind of immediately get it and go, you know what, you're right, let's get behind this. Yeah. Yeah? I think there's another group which I sometimes call the friendly fire, which is, you know, the people who generally think that kids should be protected, but they're not prepared to engage with how they should be protected. And so it ends up being, oh, let's have parental controls. Well, you know, a 17-year-old doesn't need parental controls. That's a nightmare, you know, or, or, you know, well, we'll teach them better. Well, why should we? Why should we train kids for an unsafe product? No, check the product. So, so that's what I call the friendly fire. Basically, they're supportive, but they're not really thinking very deeply about what we should do. And then, then the others are pushed back, and the pushback comes in many forms. And, you know, those people with the greatest commercial interest have done the most pushing back. You know, there's some ideological pushback, and there's some ignorant pushback. Mm. But... But they come, loosely speaking, into those. And I think that, you know, it has been a long haul to get people interested. And I still would say that tens of millions of pounds have gone into, you know, into prevention of, and dollars, I mean, you know, millions and millions and millions into the prevention of child sexual abuse material, quite rightly. But I was sitting there going, don't you see how the norms of the platforms are pushing kids and we will get self-generated child sexual abuse? And then they go, they come to me three years later and go, hang on a minute, you know, more than 40% of CSAM is now self-generated. What were you saying about that? So CSAM? Yeah, sorry, uh, child sexual abuse material, you know, self-generated. So, so my point is that we have to, We have to do this at a systemic level and we have to do it at a product safety level and we have to do it, as as you said earlier in your observation, you know, it has to be common sense. You know, this is not for me an ideological fight. I love tech. I want it to be great. And any kid who's not online is more disadvantaged than most kids who are online, even with it as it is. But it is unacceptable to actually make this money on the back of kids, safety, well-being, and health. Yeah, it's an unsafe. It's an at the basic level. It's an unsafe product for kids, especially. It's an unsafe product, and yeah. I say it's a generational injustice. Mm-hmm. So, is it 2018? What's the name of the act that you crowbarred this into, which was fantastic? It's the Data Protection Act. So that's coming in 2018. That kind of comes it started. Up. It started its passage in law in 2017. It yeah. became an act in 2018, yeah. and it required the creation of the age-appropriate design code. And we agreed the fundamental points of what that code would involve in the parliamentary process. So, so those supporters in Parliament mm. had a huge role in setting out those three principles that I told you at the beginning of this conversation about who a kid is, likely to be accessed, and that it was by design and default. And then the minister agreed in Parliament that these 15 standards would form part of the code. Right. And then it was given to the regulator, the Information Commissioner's Office, to create a code. And it went through a secondary uh, legislation process, which I really do think is too detailed for your listeners, yeah, yeah. but but it took about 18 months. It had consultation, it had pushback, it had quite a lot of very angry <laughs> tech companies um, and so on. But 
At the end of that process, the commissioner published what is now found on the ICO website, the Age Appropriate Design Code, and gave everybody a year to comply. And after a year, it would be law. And that's why it took so long. Uh, that's September, September 2nd was, yeah. now it's law. And in your experience trying to get this whole thing, you know, roll, rolling this boulder up the mountain, do you ever find it like, I mean, you, it's a victory, but do you also find it ever galling when a company, because like I, as a journalist, will, you know, reach out to YouTube or somebody and be, you know, like, what are you doing to protect kids or like, and they're kind of almost in a braggadocious way being like, well, we've stopped autoplay. Yeah. <laughs> We're doing all of these steps to protect the children when you have a unique perspective and like you were trying to behind closed doors with these people being like, look, this is a basic thing you should do. And it's like, you know, autoplay has a financial function for that company because it keeps people on seeing more ads, etc. Do you ever have these moments where you're like, you bastards? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I, I'm no paragon of virtue. I'm never going to, I'm not going to say I never have a, I, 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 my you bastards moments are mm. less about what they have done because actually I celebrate every mm. single benefit to the lived experience of children. Fantastic. Yeah. And I think really important to say that although we brought the code in, in, in the UK, these changes have been rolled out globally. So, you know, fabulous. My, my you bastards are at the moment, I'm talking, you know, about privacy preserving age assurance and what that might look like, you know, about how you check a kid's age without turning the internet into a, into a, a, a sort of a, a prison, without chucking kids out of where they should be, right. without actually using it as a surveillance mechanism, et cetera, et cetera. And, and they go, oh, it's too difficult. Oh, it'll fall over. Oh, and I kind of go, you bastards, we're here again. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. none of that is true just like yeah. the age-appropriate design code hasn't killed them, neither will this. And in fact, you know, I was looking at uh, some things around um, Facebook's login today, mm. and interestingly, in their own published terms, it says we give age range as part of our login process. So, oh, whoops. You know, once again, it's actually not about what they can and can't do. It's about the way in which they do it and how it is optimized for their business interest rather than for the interest of children. So that's when I get you bastards. You know, the truth is I speak to the tech companies whenever they want and occasionally when I do, <laughs> when I want, but, but, but whenever they want. And, and I think that buried in the corridors, there are some good people doing good things. But, yeah. you know, this is about the system. It's not about individuals. Yeah. And then just lastly, the, uh, the question to now is, of course, enforcement, because the design code is now law in the UK as of September. As you say, a lot of these changes like the end of autoplay or stopping messages after 9 p.m. for younger users, all this kind of basic stuff, that's now happening on some, but not others, in some cases, but not all. So what does enforcement look like? What are the penalties? Because there are potentially quite big. And why is it important that if a lot of these changes are global, that you have California thinking about imposing the same or the federal government in the US 
imposing elements of this? Why is it, you know, how does that all kind of hang together when you talk about enforcement and actually kind of cleaning up the, or kind of remaking the internet a bit way so it like kind of more reflects the real world? Well, yeah. I mean, if I start at the end of that question and say, does America really want, you know, the UK to be the determiner mm. of American children's experience online? And I, I say that in a with reference to our earlier part of the conversation, which is children's childhood is an on-off business in the connected world. And so how it is arranged has profound effects on the values, the understanding, the emotional well-being, and in certain cases, the physical well-being of children. So it is inappropriate, in my view, that a regulator in one country determines that, especially when most of the, most of the um, companies are, uh, with really big impact are closer to you than me. So I think it's just that. The second thing is that the reason that California, the federal government, and in fact, the other places like Canada, Australia, Ireland, uh, Holland, all doing this now, the reason it's important them coming to the party is we got to establish norms. Yeah. You know, we've got to establish norms and and the norms that we establish are going to be better held up, you know, by having more people holding them up. And what I specifically mean is it comes right to the beginning of your question, which is I have written to the ICO with 12 thematic complaints alongside 150 named companies. Mm. I am about to write to them again on a couple of more very specific complaints and I will eventually turn to the law if people don't comply. Now you're right we can give eye-watering fines if the regulator finds against a company for breaking the code they can go four percent of global sales of global turnover yeah, yeah. which I is mean, huge you know tens of billions of dollars just, for a single company yeah but I think that for me and I kind of it's it's back to your you bastards question you know, for me, I want compliance. Yeah. I don't want fines. Yeah, yeah. And I think we're in danger when people judge this by, you know, how many fines instead of how many changes. We are in danger of kind of moving the responsibility from the tech companies to the state actors, which actually none of us want. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that for me, I would like to see a little bit more leadership from the center. I'd like to see these guys saying, we have done this because of code and now we're going to do this and our 2024 is this and our 2025 is this and our new products have these people in the team. And actually we are, even though it will cost us, going to look after kids. And I really want to make one very important point on the economics, which is I get a lot of, well, is this good for SMEs? Is it good for innovation? Is it, is, it, is it reasonable to expect business people to do this? And I will say these couple of things. First of all, why do you want to grow new shit companies? You don't, yeah? You want new companies to be built, yeah, yeah with safety at the heart, mm. right? And the, and the code is not arduous if you're doing the right thing yeah yeah the code is only arduous if you set your business up in a way that hurts kids that's the first point the second point is that actually tech as it is is kind of unsustainable so you can make a lot of arguments about why facebook lost in the last month 25 percent of its share price right mm. 
But actually, in large part, it is because kids didn't feel good about Instagram. It made them feel self-conscious. It made them feel lousy. It made them think. Now, they moved to TikTok because it seemed more like activity than image. Yeah. And kids need to work out what's wrong with TikTok now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Because they are by no means any better. But the point is that actually in the long run, if they can't fix this for kids, they're actually going to suffer anyway. And I think in the long run, it will be cheaper to actually take kids out of the business model, give them a decent time, put their white flag up, than it will to just press and press and press and press and say, you know what, network, engagement, hours spent at any cost. It doesn't work. Yeah. Well, that's what's really, you talked about norms and what you're trying to do. You know, we're quarter century into like the internet as we know it. What you're trying to do is basically disestablish the norms up to this point or establish new ones. And that's hard work. But to your point, it does feel like you're reaching, we're reaching this interesting kind of inflection point where they're seeing the limitations. We're seeing the limitations of that maximal, the maximalist time spent engagement, et cetera, that model for everybody. Because, you know, it's not good for everybody and that's becoming more and more clear. And maybe that's, it kind of makes me think of, you know, trying to convince people to save the planet by going vegan. It's like, make a really, really good burger that isn't made out of cows and then people will switch. Make it clear, or maybe the market is already making it clear that this is bad for business and then there will be a change. And I think that pushing on one end and what you're doing on the other, maybe there will be, I hope, because, you know, it's not going to be too long before my kids start to want a phone. Yeah. And Danny, I think maybe... It's worth saying, you know, and, and I know the similar, it's very similar in the States, but in the 19th century, when industrialization came hmm. and the factories were built, there were 14 factory acts, not one, not one little 14. code, but 14 factory acts that were about the safety of the factory. But at the same time, because people had come to the city, yeah, there were things about sewers and public health. You know, they invented the light in the street, the street lamps, and they invented the weekend. So all of these things were subject to regulatory attention because basically they went, ah, if we're going to have this invention called factories, industrialization, cities, living cheap by jowl, we need some rules about it. So what I always feel is one little code doesn't do everything, although Honestly, nothing would make me happier than California adopting the code, than a federal code, than seeing it spread. But also, we are going to need other legislation. We may need competition, antitrust. We may need some safety laws that go beyond data. You know, we may need some things that actually protect tech from too much intrusion. I'm not on anyone's side apart from the kids. Yeah. So in other words, we need another dozen factory acts, basically. We need some factory acts and we need to, first of all, decide these guys are factories, <laughs> which they are. <laughs> we can end it there, but that's, uh, it's, I think it's fascinating. And so we had you on 2017, it's now 2022. I'm hoping it's not going to be 2027 next time we need to kind of have a proper update on all of this stuff. But um, thank you again for taking the time. I think it's obviously great work for it. Uh, I congratulate you because... It's going to benefit certainly my kids and everybody's kids. So, yeah, keep it up. Although I don't think I have to tell you that. 
(laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. And thank you for a lovely conversation. No, thank you. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank uh, Baroness Kidron for coming on, one of the OGs of Danny in the Valley, coming on way back when we were just getting started. We've got to do more of that, check in with folks who were with us from day one. I want to thank you all for listening. I will be writing in the paper this weekend, uh, probably about Ukraine, some kind of tech angle related to Ukraine, because... Well, it's obviously a just horrendous story, and it's kind of the story. So do keep an eye out for that. That will be in the paper this weekend. And yeah, just thank you all for listening, for the ratings and reviews, telling your friends and neighbors, helping spread the word about the pod. And that is it for me this week. Um, have a fabulous weekend. Our thoughts, our solidarity is with Ukraine. It's just strange, strange times we live in. And uh, yeah, everyone stay safe. Stay sane. Talk to you next week. Bye-bye. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone.